Hello and welcome. We're glad that you've joined us. We're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we're going to continue our exploration into some of the wisdom we can gain from Ecclesiastes. It is written in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 beginning in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of ch the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We understand from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1 that these are the words of the preacher who is king in Jerusalem. And that is certainly Solomon. And at the end of the book, in chapter 12 and verse 9, he is said to have written many proverbs. And that's why it's directly associated with Solomon from 1 Kings 4.32. The main themes that have gone through Ecclesiastes to this point is that all is vain. And vanity, Hebrew hevel, is breath of vapor, almost absurdity in a, in a philosophical sense. Uh, everything is striving after wind. Everything, it, it, it doesn't profit in the end because in the end all die. And since everyone dies, pleasure has its limits. Because everyone dies, whatever you make and do and attain for yourself through your toil will go and become uh, the possessions of another. And so in this void almost, where the preacher sees everything dies, everyone dies, the fool dies, the wise dies, uh, the great and the poor all die, everything ends in death. Uh, he's trying to understand what it is given to man under the sun, that is, on earth. And we see here in chapter 8, verses 5 through 17, that he comes back to this idea of the righteous and the wicked, and some thoughts about the righteous and the wicked.
And he begins in verses 5 through 9, uh, right on the heels of verses 1 through 5, which talk about the need to obey the king. And so the preacher goes from the need to obey the king to the idea of, of needing to uh, keep commands and to know the proper time for things and the way that is just. In verse 5, that there is in fact a way and a time for everything, but man's big problem is that he just can't know. He doesn't know how things are going to turn out, because he can't see the future. He doesn't know how long he's going to live. He doesn't know which is... He, he knows there's a right path, but it just... There seems to be all this brush in front of him. It's hard for him to figure out which way it would be to go, because he can't know what will be, in verse 6 through 7. And again, he establishes that no one has power to retain the spirit, or power of the day of death, that we all die and we don't have control over when we die. And he's understanding all of these things, he says in verse 9, because he's using his wisdom, and he's perceiving all that is being done, and what happens when man has power over man to his hurt, to that injury. And so then he's going much more thoroughly into the wicked and the righteous. And he begins with the wicked buried. And there's some variation in certain versions about how this story comes out, uh, where whether or not he professed to be righteous or not. But the English standard probably has it right that the wicked who are buried are, are being more lamented as if they're righteous because they went to church, they went to the, synag- the temple, they went to the synagogue, they went to church, so to speak. Uh, they went in and out of the holy place, and, and of course somebody is always there to praise the works of, of those who have something to give. Um, but in the end it's a vanity, because it didn't profit them, and in the end they, they still died, despite their pretense. Uh, he understands this verse there, 11, that uh, this is often used to commend uh, quick justice. That because the sentence against evil deeds not execute speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And that certainly makes sense and as far as it can go with uh, human logic and following human laws. But the, the, what the preacher says here is far more profound and true because it's not just about those things that might get you in trouble with the law of the land. It's those things that can separate you from God. And since that sentence of justice is not executed speedily, uh, it, you think you can get away with things. And either nobody knows this or, or you'll be forgiven or something, and so it's easy to get away with things. That's what the heart of people are set on evil. But you know, this, this, you'd think from all of this and from the general tones of despair the preacher has that he just want to say, ah, it doesn't really matter, do what you're going to do, but he never gets there. And that's where it's, it's hard to say that, that the preachers become fully unhinged because he maintains this confidence that even though a sinner may somehow prolong his life despite his wickedness, it's still going to be better for the righteous. It's going to be better for the righteous. Now, we understand from a special Christian perspective that it'll be better for the righteous in the day of judgment. That's not the main point of the preacher here. He says it's going to go better for the righteous because they fear God. And it, you might start thinking of all these wonderful flower theological reasons why that would be great. The preacher doesn't have those. He's just simply saying, look, they fear, they respect, they revere, they understand authority. And so they understand authority, they understand that they don't have the authority. They're not puffed up in their heart to do types of behaviors that would get them killed. And so they tend to live with more discretion. 
those who don't fear God don't live with that kind of discretion because they think they're the masters of their universe and that that's when bad things start happening to people of that sort. He then continues with this vanity. He speaks of it twice as a vanity, in the beginning and at the end, in verse 14, and beginning and end of that verse. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are right wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. The way we would say this is that good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. And he says it's a vanity, it's a breath, it's a vapor, it's absurd. And so instead, in verse 15, he says, I commend joy, because that's what man's been given, to eat and drink, be joyful. That's going to go with him through the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. And then he turns and says, very much in conclusion what he's just said, but also in general, he's been seeing all these things through wisdom, and he's reached the limit of it. And he says, look, I've seen that there's a lot more that goes on. That you can't see the work of God totally. And even under the sun, even the way the way the world works, there's a lot of things that go on that we don't understand. And even if somebody claimed to understand them, they're not gonna they're never going to be able to. And so the preacher's point's not horribly subtle here. Uh, there are questions about God's goodness in light of evil endured in life are really not very profitable. They detract from the good God has given us and we're not gonna understand it. And so, this is where the preacher's wisdom led him. And it's very important, by the way, that the preacher's wisdom has led him to the recognition, ultimately, that his wisdom is circumscribed. Uh, he, he, he at least knows that there's a lot he doesn't know. And that we've got to come to grips with those limitations uh, regarding all of these questions that we have about our existence, especially as they relate to these issues of justice and the righteous and the wicked. And that's something that is an important point that he hammers home and a very prominent feature here in the discourse in the ancient Near East, as we'll see here in a minute. But a lot of great stuff here. Uh, the, the conviction that the preacher has that righteousness is still better than wickedness is, is very central. Because, again, the preacher's not just going completely despondent in despair and acting like, oh, uh, there's no value in doing good. A lot of people are sent that way. Uh, a lot of people get to the point where, well, we're all going to die anyway, so why does it matter if I do X or Y? The preacher says, it's, it still does matter. It still does matter. And even under this sun... Righteousness maintains value. We're told in 2 Peter 3, 11-13, that in the new heavens and the new earth, that's where righteousness is going to dwell in the resurrection. But even though there's all this greatness in righteousness, the, the, the preacher's not delusional. He recognizes there's a lot of wickedness on the earth. And he associated with justice is not speedily accomplished. And that's a very easy temptation to fall into. I think we've all done that at some time. Where we've justified what we're doing because we think that it's not going to matter in the end. That in the end, the reason we feel comfortable doing it is because we know, we, we're pretty confident we're going to wake up the next morning. Uh, that if we weren't maintaining that confidence that justice is going to be actually more speedily, we might well stop doing that. 
And that becomes our cross to bear, so to speak. It's because the day of judgment is going to come. The day is going to come when we're not going to wake up. Or the day is going to come when the Lord returns, and we're going to have to answer for all those things we did. And if our only answer is, well, I, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I was going to see if I could get away with it, was not going to work on that judgment day in Acts 17.30 and 31. Um, so it's also important for us to realize, though, that we shouldn't be surprised at all. We see wickedness everywhere, because the preacher wasn't surprised, and so why should we? It's firmly in the human heart. And so the preacher's been understanding these things with his wisdom, but then he comes to this matter that it's a vanity. <clears throat> this matter of the righteous who suffer and the wicked who prosper. And this question, like we said, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? For that matter, why is there evil? How can a loving God allow evil to exist? And these are the questions that really not a lot of people. These are questions that maybe we've asked at times ourselves. We know other people have been asking. Maybe we know somebody who lost their faith because some terrible thing happened. They couldn't come to grips with this question. Or, or any number of things. But to the preacher, it's just a vanity. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's absurd. And there's some good reasons for that. First of all, for to get the posture. A lot of people make a mistake with the wisdom literature in general, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, where they, they're, they're, they're dealing with the internal struggles in the text without having the, the edifice of faith that the people who are uh, involved in the text had. Uh, it's within the edifice of a full confidence in, in, in Yahweh as the Creator and His loving kindness and covenant loyalty to Israel that a lot of these conversations can take place. And so a lot of people think of this idea of good and evil, and they're railing against uh, the existence of God because, you know, good has not prevailed. And, and, and you, you find it's a very strange paradox, or it's probably not even understood as a paradox. But how can somebody be railing and saying, well, you know what? This evil happened. If there's a loving God, he could allow this evil to happen. Therefore, there, there is no God. And to have that line of logic without asking questions, well, what is good? What is bad? If you're going to look at the matter under the sun, if you're going to take God out of the equation, what do these terms mean? And on what basis are these judgments rendered? Why would we expect good things to happen to good people, or bad things to happen to bad people? Because under the sun, things just happen. They just are. They're not good or bad, they just are, if you're going to take God out of the equation. Because the minute you expect answers, you're confessing there is a God, that he's a creator, and that he established a creation and justice, as you can see in Psalm 33, 4-9, because in order to start having this argument about good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, all of these moral value judgments need to have some kind of antecedent. And it's not going to come from Darwinian evolution. It's not going to come from uh, some kind of scientific standard, because that's not what science is involved in. In order to have that, you must 
expect in this universe there be an equilibrium that is understood to involve justice, that there is something that you can say is good and something that is bad, and that those definitions have meaning beyond what humans invest in them. Therefore, there must be an intelligent creator or some force that's propelling it all. Thus, you have God. So there, it, either you can rail, have this question and recognize there's a God, or you can uh, deny there's a God and therefore not be troubled by this question. But you're going to have other questions that will trouble you. So that's why the whole edifice and the whole construct in which we're asking these questions need to first be considered, and also why the matter will become vain. Because... You're asking, how can the one who defined good and bad allow what he defines as bad to happen to good people, what is defined as good to happen to bad people? And so ultimately it becomes a questioning of the creator of the way that he runs things. And it's a breath, that's a vapor, because it's going to all pass away. And there's a reason why uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 16, 17 come after this part here about of in verse 13. Uh, the preacher can see all these things in wisdom that he's already talking about. He can see the cyclical nature of life and the end of pleasure and labor. Uh, he can see that the oppressor and the oppressed both die. He can see there's a time for different things. He can see uh, the, how you should conduct yourself in front of a king. You can understand a lot of things through wisdom. But when you get to this issue, which is frequently talked about in terms of theodicy, uh, theo, uh, theos and... Um, Dikaios, the just God's justice, or is, is there a just God? Uh, the very way that that issue is constructed is mightily problematic, and certainly something that wisdom, as humans understand it, cannot fully comprehend. Now, are there other aspects of the creation that man can't really understand? Sure, sure there are. But it, with theodicy, it, the, the matter is very apparent very quickly. And it's not just by the preacher. It's in, you have it in Job. You have it with the sons of Korah. You have it with all these other people in the Psalms. You have this questioning. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is justice flaunted? Why does evil even exist, let alone prosper? Why are the people of God who seek to obey Him being beat down, while those who oppose everything God is about succeed? People have wanted to know this for generations upon generations upon generations. But interestingly, despite all of our technological advancement, despite all the people who have thought about the question, we've gotten no closer to a satisfying answer. Now, some people think they have one. Well, it's because people sin and they have free will. And that, that can't explain some of the mechanics of the how something uh, how it goes about that these things may happen, but doesn't explain the reason behind them or why evil exists in the first place. Uh, understanding that maybe the powers of darkness have temporary power, but they will be defeated in the end uh, by God may explain the situation on the ground, but it doesn't explain the cause. And for a lot of the people, it's just not an issue because they accept evil as part of the way things are. Or they suggest there's an evil god that has powers contest in continual contest with good gods, like in dualism, Zoroastrianism, things like that. And of course, the philosophers have been struggling with this question as well. 
But the preacher has given us the answer. It's just not the answer we want to hear. The answer is, it's a vain matter. It's, a, it's, a, it's something God understands. Because again, ultimately it's a vanity, it's a breath, because you can wonder about it all you want, but is your wondering going to change anything? The reason you want to know is so you can gain mastery over that situation. But there's no mastery that you can gain over the situation of how things go with the righteous and the wicked. It's beyond our understanding. And God is responsible for the structure under, by which we understand good and evil and why good should triumph. And that's why we need to trust that he will see it through. Like in Psalm 73. That God understands, that we do not, and we may never understand, and even if we could, that understanding doesn't change anything, so that's why the preacher calls it vanity. It's a breath, it's a vapor. You can wonder about it and rail about it into the night. It's not going to change anything. And that's why in the middle of that section there, in verse 15, the preacher commends joy. You can dwell upon questions of justice and get yourself in a tizzy and get an ulcer, and it can have a very corrosive effect on your life and the soul and the way you look at everything. And you won't find any enjoyment in life. You can rail about that question until the cows come home. Everybody can. Uh, some people may feel like they have more merit in that. Why things have happened to them or the ones they love the way they have and how it could possibly be. But in the end, it doesn't change the reality on the ground. But there's great value in joy. That's so why Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice in Philippians 4. 4. And it's joy because it's not dependent upon circumstances. One of the more fascinating parts about how we're made as humans is that we're made so as to be able to find enjoyable things no matter how terrible life might otherwise seem. And it's impressive and powerful how humans have been able to find joy in some of the most difficult and horrendous circumstances. Not because of how horrible or their circumstances may be, but in trying to find something that will give hope. Likewise, it's amazing how humans can find misery and sadness, no matter how well and beautiful life otherwise might seem. You've got very sad and depressed people in very prosperous settings, and you have very happy people in the most dire of settings. And that's why Paul says who does in Philippians 4, 11 through 12, that he's learned the joy of contentment, that whether he abounds or whether he is in want, that he is content where he finds himself. Because after all, what is, it, what is given to man to enjoy? And this goes back to that fundamental issue in Ecclesiastes, where mankind keeps wanting to invest everything with meaning it can't sustain, that they, they want some babble to, to be left after they've gone, but it all turns to dust, it's all forgotten, that God has given for us to enjoy joy, to eat, to drink, to enjoy the, the wife of one's youth, to enjoy the labor that one does. And those things are what it can abide no matter what's going on around you. That most people can enjoy at least some of food and drink and, and, and life in some way, no matter what circumstances. The trouble we get into, again, is when we take for granted what is given for us to enjoy. The beauty of the creation, the beauty of relationships, the beauty of eating and drinking, and, and the joy of work. And we live instead in continual frustration and despair because that which we're seeking really doesn't satisfy 
and we have questions that we can't get answered, and we feel deeply distressed and unsatisfied and discontent because we're not getting the object of our desire, but out whatever not with, wow, excuse me, questioning whether that desire is good in the first place. But there sometimes is great joy when we just entrust to God the issues we don't understand and that we can't understand and instead find the ability to enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. So this is the preacher's wisdom with righteousness and wickedness, that wickedness is pervasive, but it is better to be righteous than to fear God. Bad things will happen to good people. Good things will happen to bad people. Evil exists. It shouldn't be. That's the way it is. To try to explore these matters more deeply is a vanity. We haven't been able to figure it out yet because it's beyond us to figure it out. Instead, it's for us to enjoy food and drink and joy and life. It's interesting. Everybody wants to ask God in Scripture, why does evil exist? But you look in vain for answers to that question. And so people rail about how incomplete the Bible is or how God is insufficient, but they've never questioned their question. Because if you shift the question a little bit, what has God done about evil? All of a sudden, the whole Bible is about that story. About how God sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins and raised Him from the dead on the third day. And Jesus gained victory over sin and death and evil, allowing those who would come and put their trust in Him to overcome sin and death, just as He did, to have the hope of the resurrection, where we can be dead to sin, where we can live where righteousness dwells, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, and we will be content in the presence of God and the Lamb. We can gain victory of the force of evil as well, but only in Christ. In Romans 5, 8, and 1 Corinthians 15. And therefore we encourage all people to do so, and to overcome evil through the blood of Jesus. If you have any questions or comments on anything we've discussed here in Ecclesiastes, you maybe you want to talk about maybe some issues of wickedness or evil, or righteousness. Maybe you want to talk more about Jesus, what he's done for us. Maybe you just need to talk. Maybe you've got a prayer request. Maybe you just need some prayer through some difficulty. If there's any way that I can be of any service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ, we can find us online at venturechristchrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Meetup, Twitter, and others at Venice Church of Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.